If you have a Bible with you, find 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 through 17, our, our reading from the New Testament for this morning. This is our seventh sermon in a series going through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, this will be the last sermon for a while. Uh, as many of you know, I'm going on sabbatical for the month of June and July. Next weekend is our parish retreat. And then after that, I'll be on a sabbatical. And during that time, Drew is, I'm very happy, going to be preaching through First Samuel. And then later in the fall, we'll pick back up with First Peter and finish the book in, at the end of October and in November. That was all filler. Uh, so that you could have enough time to find First Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Now we've seen over the last couple of months as we've been going through this letter, we've seen that it's written by the Apostle Peter something like 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to churches that are scattered um, throughout the Anatolian Peninsula, which is today Western Turkey. And at the heart of this letter is Peter's concern for the churches. He's concerned for them because they're suffering. And so what he's doing in this letter is he's writing them to counsel them and to encourage them as they go through this really tough time. And in our passage of Scripture this morning, he, he gives us two things. Two things that Peter gives us that God is saying to us. Two things God is teaching us. Number one, how to look at suffering. And number two, how to respond to suffering. Okay, first of all, let's see how to look at suffering, how to interpret it, how to process it. Notice our first three verses. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who then will harm you if you become zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Notice, first of all, that as Peter is talking about suffering... This is not some Pollyanna view. There is real pain here. Peter is unflinching, he's unflinchingly realistic in his perspective on suffering. In fact, 22 times in this very short letter that you can read in 14, 16, 17 minutes, depending on your rate of reading, 22 times. He brings up the issue of suffering, trials, testing, intimidation, slander, vilification, being judged. And it's interesting. When Peter brings up the suffering that they're going through, almost every time, nine out of ten times, what he's talking about is verbal abuse. Suffering as a result of verbal abuse. These Christians were out of step with the morals and the values of the society they lived in. And when a person at that time in that place became a Christian, they were transformed. They were no longer insiders to the society. They once were, but when they became a Christian, they were transformed into outsiders 
who had contracted the slow-working, malignant cancer of social opposition. Living in an environment that is charged with suspicion is a serious thing. This is a form of suffering akin to a slow-working acid that corrodes your identity. Social alienation is not trivial. But notice, notice in the midst of suffering is blessing. Look at verse 14. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now here we see that being a Christian gives you the ability to find life nasty, brutish, and at the same time, meaningful. This is a perspective that doesn't have the slightest hint of a rose-colored tint. Learning to be a Christian, growing in the Christian faith, learning to see the cross and the resurrection of Jesus as the clue to all of life, this gives you the ability to both see the darkness of the world without losing purpose, without losing meaning. Here is Peter, the author of this letter, and he has an unflinching gaze into the abyss of the evil, the evil and the suffering of life without sentimentality, without naivete. He's experienced great tragedy, and he's writing to churches that are overwhelmed by acts of injustice, and yet he is telling them that they should not view their suffering, this is the key, as an interruption. It's not an interruption. That's the way our society views suffering. We, our, our society thinks about suffering as this thing that interrupts our path to happiness. This thing that blocks us from, from comfort and pleasure and personal freedom. But in 1 Peter, we have a radically different view. The Christian perspective puts suffering in a totally different light. God is showing us through this letter that because the center of the universe, the center of time and space and history, because the center of all things is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of this, suffering is not an interruption, but it can be a contribution. Suffering is not this barrier to what's most important in life. It is a crucial stage in pursuing what's most important, most satisfying, most significant, most meaningful. Look, when you read Peter's letter, he keeps coming back to suffering over and over and over. He, he's got this stubborn emphasis on the suffering, not only the, of what the churches are going through, but he also keeps coming back to Jesus' suffering. It's like a, um, a song that just keeps playing on the radio, trying to worm its way in, right, to... To, to your, your imagination and your thoughts and your, your, and, your, and your whole view. And what Peter is doing is he keeps 
playing the same rhythm over and over, the same melody line. Because what he's wanting you to do is he's wanting you to see that the, the pattern of Jesus' cross and resurrection is not only about dealing with evil and rescuing us from our sins and giving us forgiveness. It is also the pattern for our own lives. That's what Peter's doing here. Over and over, he talks about the journey of Jesus as the journey through suffering to glory. And he wants us to get that way of thinking about Jesus as not only our understanding of what Jesus was doing, but our understanding of Jesus setting a pattern for us. When you are being a Christian, when you're thinking about the world in a Christian way, when you're behaving like a Christian and holding the values of a Christian, and this puts you out of step with your friends or your family or the people you work with or the people you go to school with, when this puts you out of step with your environment, You have to learn to interpret what you're going through through Jesus' pattern. You have to think about what you're going through as you being on the path that Jesus walked. When the Gospels tell the story of the life of Jesus, all four of them climax in the same way. With Jesus getting spit on, being punched in the face, ridiculed, insulted, mocked, suffering the humiliation of being abandoned by his friends. And remember, he was crucified at a public, well-trafficked thoroughfare, stripped naked. All four Gospels zone in on Jesus' crucifixion as a maximizing of shame. And yet, it is precisely this shame-drenched suffering that God used to defeat evil And to set us free from our sins and idolatry. And it is this humiliated, spurned Christ whom God vindicates, raises up, and enthrones in glory. And so when being a Christian makes it hard for you socially. When being a Christian produces shame, embarrassment. When you find yourself in a moment that to embrace Christianity and to really own it, that this puts you in a place of social kind of suffering, you need to view that moment as you being in the pattern of Jesus. And in fact, over in 1 Peter chapter 4, He says, in that moment, 
verse, chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In that moment, in some way, you are participating in his sufferings. And so now you're on the pattern. And what comes next? What is the pattern? Suffering that leads to vindication and glory. The reason he keeps playing the same melody line over and over and over and over is he wants you to learn to think about your suffering through that lens. Not as an interruption, not as a barrier, but as a participation in the pattern of Christ. Suffering that leads to vindication and glory. So he says, if you should suffer for righteousness sake, in verse 14, you will be blessed. That's what he's indicating. Blessed by God. With God's glory. Now, there can be no better epitaph than participation in Jesus' suffering and glory. If we get to participate in his suffering, we will share in his glory. So that's our first point. He's trying to teach us how to look at suffering. Don't see it as chance misfortune or merely an act of injustice. Learn to see these moments when you're being treated unfairly, when you're being misunderstood, accused of hate, accused of not being with it, when you're being made to feel small, an outsider. Learn to stop looking at that as an interruption. Instead, learn to see Christ as the clue to all of life. You are participating in the sufferings of Christ, and you will participate in his glory. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing God is teaching us through this passage is not, it's not about how to look at suffering. It's, it's about once you look at it that way, now notice how you can respond to suffering. At the end of verse 14, once you're looking at suffering in the right way, you can have no fear, nor be troubled. Okay, so when we let the pattern of Jesus, the pattern of suffering for righteousness sake, when we let that be our deepest imagination, that it will lead to vindication, when we let this cross-shaped pattern sink into our thoughts and hearts and imagination, then we can resist fear in those moments when fear strikes us. Have no fear in that moment. Don't be afraid of those people that are slandering you. Don't be troubled. Don't be intimidated. This is so hard to do. So difficult. How do we hold fear at bay? When people are laughing at us, ridiculing us, when you feel the vibe of the room turning toward and against you, and you feel people viewing you as intolerant, when you know, when you really, really, really know that suffering for righteousness leads to God vindicating you, then you can know that in that moment, the suffering you're going through is neither permanent nor ultimate. So the reality of suffering is still there. 
This is not a way to not suffer. It's still there. The cancer of malice has not been cured. But you can almost hear in the background of Peter's words here what Jesus said in our gospel passage. Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus said, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, can't do anything to you. What's the most they can do? Kill you. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What Jesus is saying here is what is the most they can do to you? We should not be terrorized by those who inflict suffering on Christians. The only one whom Christians should fear is God. If you revere God alone, there is no need for terror in the face of any kind of danger. And I know this is hard. It is very hard for me. This has been one of the themes of my own experience of Christianity. When I was a young child, I was devastated by nightmares. And um, I'm 45 now, not nearly as old as some people sitting in this general vicinity. Um, talking about Mike, not you. <laughs> Halfway there, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 45, but when I was six or seven, I went through this long stretch of just debilitating nightmares. I still remember them. And sometimes when I think about it, I can still feel the fear. Um, after, after a terrible stretch of this, one day my dad um, opened the scriptures with me and taught me to memorize 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind or self-discipline. And I began to say it every night as I lay in bed, as I was afraid to go to sleep. I was afraid of the dark. And I would say this over and over, and God used that to teach me how to resist fear. When I was a teenager in high school, I had the habit of taking my Bible to school with me to read when I had time and opportunity. And uh, I remember my senior year, honors physics, doing a, a lab, come to back to my desk, and they had gotten my Bible out of my bag. And somebody in the room, I don't know who, had wrapped it in this paper and written vile and disgusting things about Jesus on it. And... Um, I still remember that moment of thinking, in this room, there are people that don't like me and that think I'm dumb. And, right? I mean, honors physics should have made me, right? But no, still, I'm, I'm not one of the in. I'm not on the in crowd here. And fear, again, it struck right at me. I, I remember um, this moment where I was walking down the hall in high school, and I saw these people coming toward me. And they knew I wasn't going to the party. And they knew why I wasn't going to the party. And I felt their snickers strike down, their laugh strike me right down. When the Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges was passed a few years ago, giving same-sex couples the right to marry, 
I found myself in a restaurant downtown um, and somebody asking me quite loudly, knowing what I thought, in front of friends of mine in that room who were homosexual. Aubrey, what do you think about that ruling? And they just baited me. And in that moment, my old friend comes right back, strikes me. And once again, I had to practice listening to Jesus whisper to me, do not fear. What's the worst they can do to you, Aubrey? You revere Christ. You revere me. Don't revere their opinion. Don't revere your reputation. And when it comes to our response to suffering for being a Christian, the first thing we, we can do when we have the right view is have no fear, nor be troubled. But that's not all. Look at verse 15. So verse four, the last half of verse 14, he gives us a double negative. Do not fear, do not be troubled. That's the first thing to do. And then in verse 15 and the rest, he gives us a positive. So don't fear, instead be faithful. Verse 15, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Or as some translations put it, sanctify the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. That's the second response we can have. Don't fear or be troubled. Instead, be faithful to Jesus Christ. In the place of fear, faithfulness. Which one will you embrace in that moment? Which one will, will dominate you in that moment? Fear or faithfulness? Turn in your heart in that moment when you feel the fear, when you feel the shame, when you feel that suffering in that moment in your heart. Turn toward the Lord Christ. Regard Jesus as the Lord. In that moment when you sense a group or people or friends or family mocking you or mistreating you, they are laughing at you or misunderstanding you. In that moment, deep in your heart, in the center of you, in that part of you that is the real you, remember Jesus is Lord. Hold him up. As the only one whose opinion matters. And when, notice, notice what Peter doesn't let us do. When this kind of situation is playing out, on the one hand, Peter never attacks the people that are attacking the church. Nowhere in this letter does he go after the people that are going after the church. You and I cannot in this moment attack the person mistreating us. Peter never vilifies them. We cannot vilify them. He, he never makes them the enemy. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, he also doesn't let us withdraw. He doesn't, First Peter does not give us the option of withdrawing to a more sectarian existence, less likely to attract the negative attention that's resulted in our alienation, our humiliation. Instead, suffering, we are to step into it. Not in attack mode, but with the posture of persistent faithfulness and vigilance and imitation of Christ and a stance of courageous resistance to caring about what is being cared about around us. Reputation. How we're viewed. 
Remember earlier when I said that we should never minimize verbal suffering, shame, humiliation? This is serious stuff. What we see here is that in that moment, when, we, when, when a Christian is being socially pressed in that kind of way, what we're seeing is that the enemy is roaring. The devil is. And the stakes are high. Way higher than embarrassment. In that moment, the stakes... Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, so it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. In that moment, the stakes are high. It is your faith on the line to be purified. And it is so valuable it, it needs to be purified. And second, the second way in which the stakes are high is chapter 3, verse 15. When Peter says in that moment, you're facing the option of faithfulness or faithlessness. This is a crisis of decision in that moment. Will you be faithful to the one who was faithful to you? In those moments of suffering, we are engaged with diabolical forces attempting to wrestle us away from the faith. And so when our deepest loyalties and, and our, our most our most deepest love is focused on Jesus in that moment of suffering, we are to set apart in our heart the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one that matters. We are to sanctify him. And how do we actually do that? How does a person in that moment, in their heart, sanctify Jesus, make him holy, regard him as holy? Well, I wish it was another way, but look what it says. By being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, do it though with gentleness and respect and a good conscience when you're being slandered. That's the act of faithfulness. The act of faithfulness in that moment is to speak up. Not attacking with gentleness and respect and not withdrawing. So when you're in a place where being a Christian, holding a Christian view, having Christian values, when the Christian perspective on a topic, when this produces suffering for you, don't be afraid of what the world is afraid of. Don't be afraid of losing face. Don't be afraid of being thought of as dumb or mean or unloving or intolerant. Don't be afraid of that. Instead, in the moment, instead of fear, regard Christ as the Lord as you step into that suffering and with gentleness and respect, you speak the truth. Revere God. Honor Him by giving a gentle 
respectful, truthful response. So in that restaurant, in a moment, it caught me off guard, right? I wasn't, I was walking out of the restaurant. I didn't have time to explain a thousand things. He didn't ask me to act like Dr. Aubrey Spears and give him a long view of this stuff. He just wanted to know right then, right there. So I prayed really quick, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then I tried to say the truth as gently and as patiently, knowing it would be misunderstood and knowing I would be seen as not with it. I wish I always was faithful. This is what God calls us to. And Christians must do good, even if doing good results in suffering. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There are times when suffering is God's will for you. Not all suffering is God's will. There's lots of different kinds of suffering. I'm not saying that every suffering in the world, this is a particular suffering he's talking about. And in the context of this letter, it's not about some kind of philosophical argument about why does evil exist and why do bad things happen to good people. He's talking about a very specific things. And he says, look, in that moment, it is way better to suffer for doing good than to do evil. Because in that moment, when you suffer for doing good, you're stepping into the pattern of Christ. You are participating in the sufferings of Christ, and you will be vindicated. You will be. You see, it all starts in verse 12. It all starts with the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When you believe that, when you really believe that there's not just some vague, generic force in this world, but there's a real God, and he really sees you, and he really hears you, and he really is against evil. And in the end, he really will make all things right. He will sort it all out. When you really believe that, you can be like Jesus, who it says earlier, 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 21. For this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his step. Verse 22. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God will judge. God will defend you. When, the, when it's all said and done, God is going to make all things right. And when you can rest in that, when you can believe that is true, then you can respond without fear and you can respond with courage. But it's so important that when you do this, you have a clear conscience, a good conscience, he says. This is vital. We don't need any more hypocrites in the church. In this moment, Day by day, hour by hour, we need to keep a close watch over our inner moral monitoring system. Don't let it get rusty. Don't start ignoring it and, and telling it to be quiet. A good Christian conscience means a good witness in a puzzled and suspicious world. And it may take time to have its effect, but it's a lot better 
than any single moment of stupidity which gives the watching world the perfect excuse to once again ignore the gospel. The eyes of the Lord, He sees, He hears, He cares. And when that, become, when that worms its way down into your root DNA, then in these moments, you can resist fear, resist trouble, agitation. You can rise up with calmness and gentleness and a clean conscience. And you can follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in your suffering, you can know the judge will vindicate you. And you will share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.